Welcome to Tez Podagogy. My guest for this episode is Steve Higgins, Professor in the School of Education at Durham University and one of the creators of the EEF Teaching and Learning Toolkit. Today's topic is trials and studies, how they are run, how they should be run and what sort of trials teachers can run in their classrooms. Hi Steve. Hi. So should we start by looking uh, at academic and organisational studies that happen in schools and maybe give a brief run through of the sort of studies that tend to get done in schools, you know, what type of studies? I suppose I should start by saying overall I think approaches like randomised trials are relatively rare still in education. Mm. But obviously in the UK because of the Education Endowment Foundation we've seen a large number of trials run in schools and I think now probably about a third of schools have been involved in a, a trial in England. But, but that's relatively unusual. Um, most of the kinds of research and studies that are done tend to be more descriptive or developmental studies, looking at how children learn mathematics, for example, or learn to read. Uh, but the advent of the kind of what works movement has been growing over, I suppose, the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, and the EEF has really kind of promoted and pioneered the use of large-scale trials in schools in a way that's still relatively unusual globally, uh, for example. I think there are probably now more trials running in education in England than any other country in the world. Hmm. So, so they are still relatively unusual. Um, I, I suppose for me, they, they fit in a, a, a niche, if you like, in terms of education research. When you really want to bottom out on whether something makes a measurable difference in terms of some kind of tested outcomes that you're interested in. Uh, and they have, a, for me, a unique place in the types of research that you can do because of that causal warrant, because you can actually work out as accurately as you can whether or not you think this has benefited the particular intervention group compared with a control group. And that's its strength and its weakness. Mm. So does a lot of the studies that happen around education happen in labs still or have uh, following a couple of children through um, a predetermined learning process? Yeah, I, I think historically uh, education research has been a bit of a, a hybrid between uh, field and lab studies which have very much come from, uh, from psychology and then they've been transferred into education. And of course, in a randomized trial, you want to try and control the conditions as much as possible, a scientific experiment, if you like. Uh, and it's much easier to do those sorts of studies in a lab. So the danger for me there is that if you like, you control all of the uh, internal variables in the study, but then you make it less applicable to the real mad, hectic world of classrooms where schools are unpredictable places, you can't control all of the variables. So you're actually probably learning something slightly different, I think, in what you might characterize as a field trial as opposed to a lab study. Lab studies are useful for me in exploring some of the theoretical components, in thinking about conceptually what it is you're looking at or studying. But when you move into a field trial uh, in schools in the real world, you want a much better idea about is this practical, does it make a difference, and if so, uh, how much. Uh, and then from that you can learn whether or not you think it's worth trying this approach in other settings that might be similar. Uh, it, it's a, an unusual approach, I guess, uh, and it's expensive. So you clearly couldn't test everything this way, 
but I think unless you do test some things that way, you run the risk of always assuming you know what's effective without really bottoming out on how much difference it makes. Mm, it's interesting, as you say that, because a lot of the memory uh, research seems to be to have been done in labs uh, or lab conditions. And as you say, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because if you're looking at cognitive load or you're looking at um, retrieval practice or any of those elements, in a lab setting, you're, you're potentially missing a lot of the social and environmental aspects of a school that would contribute to any, would be a decisive variable perhaps in, in, in those studies. Yeah, and that's exactly the challenge. I think there are two really clear examples from psychology research, one of which would be memory, where of course you want to control and uh, understand the variables in relation, say, to visual memory or um, auditory memory, uh, space practice retrieval. You want to kind of design a study where you've controlled those variables for the lab, but of course then in a school you actually want to answer a slightly different question which is what's the best way to get children to remember this particular skill or this particular content or this aspect of mathematics uh, so that children can use it to be successful in school. Uh, and that's rather more complicated, I think. Um, similarly with motivation studies, there's a lot of work done on motivation in psychology. And I think what we've discovered there is that you can isolate and define all of the variables really clearly for the lab but when those concepts and ideas reach schools in terms of thinking how best to motivate children to succeed at school, you reach the messiness of the real world and personalities and teacher skills, and it becomes more complicated again. Mm. So I think even if you did have a series of really rigorous lab studies, you would still need to do translational research to understand which of those are actually useful constructs or concepts uh, for the classroom, and not all of them will be, as I think we're starting to discover, particularly in motivation, but I think we'll also discover the same sorts of things around spaced practice and retrieval practice from lab studies to schools in education. Mm, I think that's a, that it certainly is a danger. So if these things are going to be transferred into schools and, and the most likely sort of type of study is a randomised controlled trial to happen in a school setting, could you give us a really simple definition of what that means and how that might look in a school? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> it, that's actually quite challenging to do because there, there's such a variety of different approaches or, uh, to randomised trials. But l let's look at some examples similar to the ones that the Education Endowment Foundation uh, have undertaken recently. So you want to know um, to what extent, uh, say, teaching assistant support uh, is beneficial when teaching assistants use a structured programme uh, in mathematics for catch-up, say, for upper primary kids. Um, as compared to just general teaching assistant support in a class, you might set up a trial where you actually have three conditions. So you have schools doing business as usual, so you, you know, if you like, how the findings will compare to what schools typically do. Mm -hmm. You have one group where the teaching assistants are uh, expected to provide catch-up support in uh, numeracy. And then you have one group of teaching assistants who are trained to deliver a particular approach, um, catch up um, in, in mathematics. Uh, and then you randomly allocate uh, schools or classes to those conditions so that you're controlling for, if you like, the normal variation that there is in, in schools. Uh, so you're not selecting schools for particular characteristics you're trying to avoid what's known as selection bias in that process. 
People often think that what you're trying to do is to create equal groups in randomization. Well, th that's not the case. Uh, over time and with enough experiments, you would create equal groups. But in a single instance of a trial, there's a chance that you'll end up with unmatched groups simply on a random basis. So you're trying to make it fair on the things that you know about, but also the things that you don't know about in assigning schools to those groups. Then you run your experiments, uh, you take a baseline measurement um, to see how the schools are doing and the pupils in those schools in mathematics. Then at the end of the experiment, you uh, do another test and you compare the outcomes for those students. The education endowment follows an approach uh, which is actually a really tough test. It's called intention to treat. So you keep those groups as intact groups when you do the final evaluation. Even if some schools drop out or some children are missing, you look at, if you like, assessing the real world conditions at the beginning and end and you compare the groups uh, as they actually experience the trial. Now that can be quite a hard test because you're then not just testing, if you like, the outcomes of the intervention, you're also testing whether or not the intervention is practical and feasible in schools, is easy to manage, all of the other things that might cause dropout or attrition. But it's the fairest way to see how much difference an intervention makes uh, because you can't have children both experience and not experience an intervention. That's logically what you're trying to do. You want to know what would happen with and without the teaching assistant support. But you can't do that on the same children. So you've got to try and find the fairest way possible to design a test of that idea. And that's why you set up control or comparison groups. How reliable do you think that that can be uh, in terms of concrete outcomes? I mean, generally, you know, do the, do the statistics bear out so that you're, you are seeing a true picture or, or is it just too messy sometimes? Um, I think it depends what you think you're learning as a result of the outcomes of the trial. Mm -hmm. Certainly sometimes you learn more about the feasibility of the approach than you do whether or not it works under ideal conditions. And, and again, the Education Endowment Foundation try and design trials of different types a sort of a pilot approach where you're just wanting to work out whether or not it's feasible, uh, a, an efficacy approach where you're trying to test something under ideal conditions where you give it the best possible chance of success, and then they also run effectiveness trials where you just want to see if this is likely to work on average, so in the wild, in schools in typical conditions. Uh, and you have different expectations about how you manage and organize trials of those different types but also you learn different things from those kinds of outcomes. If you like, again, the toughest test for effectiveness trials, is this the sort of thing that if all schools were to do it on average is likely to be beneficial? Well, that's actually a really tough question to ask. Uh, is there something that on average is going to help most people? That's kind of a holy grail of education. Yeah. But in the meantime, I think we can identify things that are promising and help schools identify things that are likely to help on average, which then starts to steer them in the right direction. For example, with teaching assistants in terms of providing structured support, uh, increasing training for teaching assistants is likely to be beneficial. And that's one of the clear messages, I think, from EF trials uh, over the last few years, that general deployment isn't particularly helpful in terms of pupil outcomes, but targeted deployment particularly with teaching assistants who are supported and trained in delivering interventions can be a very practical way to improve outcomes.
Mm. And I know that there's been some ethical concerns about randomised controlled trials in the sense that we like to think, don't we, that our children are all getting an equal education and a randomised controlled trial may advantage or disadvantage a particular group within a school. Um, is that a necessary byproduct of finding what works in education? Are there ways around that? Uh, I mean, there, there are ways around it, but I, I like to kind of flip that the other way around in thinking that actually most things in education, we have no idea whether they work or not, mm. but we're quite happy to subject children to them anyway. Yeah. So, so I think if you like the default condition is actually a bit unethical mm. and that randomized trials take an approach where we're actually trying to test something to find out. Now that does imply that you genuinely don't know or that there's sufficient doubt to make it ethically sound to investigate. But given that we don't know whether, how effective most things are in education, I think that's a relatively ethically strong position to take. Mm. And most of the things that we try and do are to bring about improvement. It's not like we're testing things that we think have no chance of working or it's just random whether or not they think they work. There's a rationale for trying them. So again, I think that's an ethically stronger position. Uh, I do think these are important issues and you do have to consider whether or not in a trial one group might be advantaged in terms of their outcomes because the trial is successful. On the other hand, it, at the beginning of a trial, we don't really know. So it, it, it's to me worth the risk to try and find out whether things are beneficial or not and then use that evidence to try and improve outcomes for other children. Uh, in terms of designs, you can have waitlist designs where uh, you run a trial, then at the end of the trial you make a judgment about whether or not it was successful, and if it's successful you effectively repeat the intervention for the control group. Uh, that's one way of approaching that. My reservation about that uh, is that although that's then ethically fair to the children involved in the trial, it removes any way of finding out whether or not the long-term benefits of a trial uh, are also worth exploring. Yeah. So uh, we know that it's successful, at, say, at the end of three months, but we don't know so much about whether it's beneficial at the end of a year or two years. And a good example like that for me would be the arguments about early reading. Uh, we know that um, phonics, for example, in uh, a lot of the researched interventions does tend to benefit 20 to 30 percent of the uh, pupils in the intervention group, but we don't know so much about what the long-term outcomes are in terms of reading comprehension and enjoyment of reading, and I'd want to reserve the possibility to find out other things by maintaining those controlled and intervention groups over time, uh, at least for a year or two, so you can start to assess wider outcomes. We know very little about long-term effects in education. Uh, so uh, I prefer designs where you keep control and experimental groups intact if you can follow up and get some long-term outcomes. But that's pro possibly slightly more controversial. And one of the things that came out of the recent Gates Foundation uh, funding of, of you know, research into schools was that the onus on the schools themselves was sometimes so onerous that the intervention sometimes failed just just through workload. Uh, um, is there a case where sometimes these studies uh, don't work as well as they can in a school or with the school as, as closely as they could do? Oh, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, but again, I think that's where you kind of want a pipeline of studies where you test things out for feasibility at a smaller scale 
and then you take things that are relatively successful through to the next stage where you try and optimize the outcomes so provide schools with additional support to see whether or not it, it is really valuable and then only at that stage do you try and run it at a larger scale to see whether it's effective for the majority of schools and that way you minimize the risks of I think burdens being put on a large number of, of schools uh, and certainly academics in the past have been unrealistic about what they think schools are able to do schools are very demanding and hectic places and it's very hard for them to accommodate uh, I, I think substantial changes in the way they work uh, one example of that recently would be trying to look at teenagers sleeping habits to see if there's a way of perhaps starting the school day later well it was just very very difficult to recruit schools who were able to change their timetable to that extent because of the demands on the secondary timetable so that just wasn't feasible to run as a randomized trial and you have to accept that some things probably won't work in that way and can't be tested to that level of rigor do you find as well that the schools can be quite self-selecting i mean are there schools that will uh, will never be touched by a research study because because it's not on their radar, or do academics acad uh, actively try and seek out new types of schools to, to do these studies with, or or is it a case that the same faces pop up to to volunteer? That's actually a really good point because it's one of my worries is that we have a self-selecting group of schools who volunteer for trials who are the ones who are trying to improve anyway mm. and are looking for different ways to help the children in their care uh, and that might effectively bias your results to working with willing groups of schools. I, I think that's almost certainly the case. Um, uh, it's ideally you'd want to randomly select schools to be involved in interventions from the whole of the population of schools in, uh, in England but that, that's just not practical for all kinds of reasons, uh, distance and travel and, and cost being one, but also the ability of schools to engage uh, at, at request uh, in a particular trial, I think is just unrealistic given the way schools operate. So I, I think we have to follow the approach we have, but that means we have to be a bit cautious about trying to generalize from the findings in terms of what's likely to be beneficial. They're likely to work in other similar schools, but it depends then how you define other similar schools. That's not just the pupil uh, uh, and teacher characteristics. It might also be the ethos of the school, how willing it is to engage in research, and that might serve as an indication for other things that make the school effective. So that, that, that is definitely a risk. And if you look at the other end of the spectrum, schools that are really struggling, uh, difficult pupil populations, high teacher turnover, they're unlikely to be able to cope with the additional demands uh, of a trial, which requires a certain amount of regulation and order. So it's clearly not feasible to do trials in all circumstances. Uh, there may be other, other ways that we might choose to support schools that are facing more challenging circumstances, I think. Mm. And I guess another variable there is the teacher themselves. I mean, if you were, if you were going to look at the uh, impact of group work on attainment, for example, and you had some teachers who were very experienced in group work and, and, and enjoyed that style of teaching and some teachers who weren't, it, it must be very difficult there then to, to, to work out whether the teacher's enthusiasm or motivation for the intervention is having an impact on your end result. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. I've always argued that you could give me the best research phonics intervention in the world and I could guarantee to make it fail in my class <laughs> if, if I didn't believe in it. 
and that's where the analogies that um, with medicine are certainly um, pharmaceutical approaches to break down because who's actually be like taking the tablets for the intervention yeah. effectively the teacher takes them on behalf of the pupils and that's a very odd way of thinking about uh, educational interventions that's also why I believe passionately about the outcomes of research being to inform teachers choices about what they might want to do rather than to inform policies prescriptions about what everyone should do so because exactly because of that risk I think if we can encourage teachers to think about research and think about things that have worked in particular circumstances you're more likely to get them to opt in to trying those interventions and that will improve the likelihood of them being successful in a new context. I don't think that's, if you like, cheating or altering the rules about research. I just think it's a very practical way of thinking about what actually makes a difference. And we know teachers make the most difference within the education system in terms of what's malleable or changeable. So it has to, for me, be about the teacher's choices to use research in a way that will help extend their current practice. And on that point, I guess, when teachers are, when, when a school signed up to a study and if you're the academic that goes in, what sort of questions would you be expecting from a teacher to you, the, the person running the study? What, would, what, what should they be asking? What should they want to know about the study? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think they will want to know about how to make it practical and feasible in the classroom. I think personally it's also important to have a bit of an understanding of the, the logic model, the theory of change, because classrooms again are such complex places, you've got to understand a bit about the intention of the intervention or approach, as well as, if you like, the rigour of a, a particular protocol that insists you do things in a particular order. It's a bit, a bit like scripted lessons. You know, I, I think you need to understand a little bit about why you're doing things as well as what to do, because that helps you... Uh, work out how to respond to pupils in different circumstances, how to manage and prioritize things in a lesson. Uh, and that's, again, back to being hectic and complex in the course of a day. So that kind of practical side of thing, I think, is, is quite important. Um, it, it depends then a bit on the nature of the trial uh, and exactly what's involved, uh, how much it's trying to uh, support the teacher in changing the way they teach, or whether it's more about supporting the pupils and the way they interact, say in peer tutoring or collaborative group work. So understanding the teacher's role in that process is I think also important in terms of what's expected. Then in terms of randomized trials, you, you need an understanding of what you can play with and what you can change and what you can't, what's negotiable and what's not in order to make the experiment rigorous. Uh, and again, I think that's quite important in terms of expectations about what needs to happen for the trial to be fair in terms of a fair test uh, uh, of the outcomes. So it, it is quite complicated. When we first started working with the Education Endowment Foundation, people said that we wouldn't be able to do trials at scale in education, that schools would find them too difficult, they wouldn't be practical. Uh, there'd be too many difficulties in running them, as well as the ethical issues we talked about before. Actually, I think we found quite the opposite, that most schools are keen to find out. Most teachers uh, are willing to be part of trials uh, and either to be in the controller intervention group. At the beginning, everyone, of course, wanted to be in the intervention group. Mm. Now, I think the better understanding that actually for a fair test, you just have to accept that you'll be allocated to one or the other. And if you're keen, then 
over time, sign up for more trials, and at some point you'll be in the intervention group. But actually, we've had very positive responses from control schools. They're just interested to find out what happens to see if it's something they should adopt. Uh, I, I think it's been surprising how well schools have taken to the trials the EEF have run. Are the teachers on the whole a well-behaved lot? Do you find, you know, if you did a spot check in the classroom, and are they generally doing what the trial tells them to do, or are they as a... I think that varies a lot by uh, by intervention or by what's being tested. Uh, I think sometimes it's relatively easy. Um, sometimes it's actually quite hard to explain. Uh, so mindset might be a good example of that. Everyone thinks they know what mindset is. But actually what we discovered in the um, EEF trial there was that the teachers that just had the CPD, uh, it didn't have much impact, whereas the group that had the CPD and some support in turning it into lesson materials and thinking about how the lessons might actually run, there was an impact in that group. So I, I think working out what level of support, what level of information and what level of practical guidance is actually one of the hardest parts of designing a really good trial. Mm. And on this, uh, coming to our last, my last question then is, we, we've described some very complex uh, elements that go into running a, a trial, and yet we're, we're going towards a situation now where teachers are encouraged to run, uh, to test out research in their classroom for themselves. Is that practical and, and if so what sort of tests of interventions can teachers do either on a whole school level you know on their own or in their own classrooms with maybe 30 children uh, that's a, again a really interesting question I, I mean i've always thought about this in terms of engaging with and engaging in research mm. as two helpful distinctions and I, I think all schools and all teachers should be engaging with research and understanding what it says we need it to start to challenge some of our assumptions or some of our um, innate biases uh, in terms of understanding what's successful. So I think engaging with is essential. Engaging in is a bit more complicated. Uh, I, I think the teacher's first job is to teach and to teach well, uh, and that you wouldn't want a lot of time and energy being taken up in managing research processes if that disadvantaged uh, the learning that was taking place in their classes uh, and that's not always an easy balance to get. On the other hand I think there are also some things that schools might want to test out to see whether it works for them in their particular circumstance and you might want to set up different levels of rigor uh, around the research to do that. So looking at just evaluation in terms of improved outcomes that are consistent with what the research would say might be the, the simplest level. So being a bit skeptical, just checking that the findings are consistent. Then you could also go right through to designing micro trials. So marking, for example, I think that's a very interesting area and a very hot topic at the moment. It doesn't strike me that it would be easy to design a protocol for a randomized trial that would work at school or, or even class level because of the variations in subjects uh, and even in terms of tasks and outcomes. But in schools, you could design a micro trial across three classes where teachers randomly assigned a particular level or type of marking to different units in chemistry or geography uh, or even different assignments and, and writing uh, in a primary school 
to see whether or not it makes a difference for the individual children, so within class randomization. Uh, and that would be relatively easy to do. It wouldn't necessarily take up a lot more time, uh, but it would let teachers check out what I think of as the micro practices that they are engaged in all of the time. And they tend not to be the concerns of researchers. Researchers tend to be more interested in the bigger theoretical questions or testing aspects of uh, educational ideas. Teachers are always going to want practical solutions, and some of those might be amenable to trials. The analogy I think of there is hand washing in medicine. It sounds a really simple thing to do. It was actually a really difficult set of practices to change. Uh, and on the basis uh, of uh, some good empirical studies worked out what the likely benefits were, were going to be. Uh, and it may be that we need similar sorts of approaches in schools with small groups of teachers trying out ideas in parallel, uh, agreeing a specific protocol that they're going to give in terms of either uh, verbal feedback or written feedback or marks or no marks. There'd be a number of ways schools could explore that, I think, quite rigorously and generate quite useful results, which could also then easily be replicated across schools. Uh, so I think there is the, um, the possibility of running more rigorous research at that micro level in schools, but it'll take a bit, I think, to build both the capacity and the space and time in schools to do those sorts of experiments. Thank you very much, Steve. That's really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for talking today. Cheers. You're welcome.